0: Groundhog Day. (laughs) Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. If you're just joining us, you've come at a great time. Self-Knowledge September. Yep, we're big believers in self-knowledge, and we're covering it from all different kinds of angles this month. It's kind of a big deal. Don't forget about our self-knowledge class. Speaking of which, it's going to start on September 29th. You can check it out at bigselfschool.com. Shelly, it's a great day to be here recording yeah. with you.
1: Hello. We're excited to have our guest today. You know, Princeton University psychologist, Emily Pronin calls this mistaken belief in privileged access. The introspection illusion. So the way I think of this, I am me, therefore I know who I am. And she's saying this is not true. This introspection illusion means the way we see ourselves is distorted and we don't even realize it. Hmm. So this will be. Maybe ignorance
0: is bliss. (laughs) Possibly. Yes. Now, I, I, I don't know if I believe that or not. No, I guess I have to, because it comes from, um, some really good, uh, a really good researcher. Yep. But, and it's true. There are many ways that we construct false narratives about ourselves. We, you know, and I, I'm guilty of it as any, we, you know, we feel like the, the, the potential, yeah, it's, it's within us, but we just never have the time. Uh, or we say that forces, you know, outside of us are compelling us to believe in ways that aren't truly who we are. Uh, you know, and sometimes I suppose these truth distortions, they're not necessarily wrong, but the question is how we lie to ourselves or distort ourselves reality. Like, why do we do it?
1: Yeah. And this is what we'll be talking about today. So this pursuit of self-knowledge is practical. Even if a degree in philosophy might might not be, (laughs) or at least seem to be, the truth is you will be happier and more effective in your life if you know yourself.
0: You know, and to that end, we decided to reach out to a top medium writer, blogger, and editor who recently graduated with a degree in philosophy, John Hawkins. He can be found, by the way, on Medium via at underscore John Hawkins. And yeah, you know, he's also a freelance and ghost writer. His services can be found on Upwork. And we just had a terrific conversation with him, John Hawkins. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it's so glad to be here. Um,
1: We're so thrilled to have you with us today, and uh, to have this this time to chat with you about this uh, integration of of philosophy and personal growth and development. I think this is going to be a really valuable. Topic for our audience, so thank you.
0: Yeah, it it is great to have you here, John. You're the founder of the Apirin blog on Medium, uh, also um, an editor on um, on Mind Cafe. T- tell us about these ende- endeavors. Uh what what led you to start the Aperion blog um you know who's your audience
2: That's a great question so um I started studying philosophy at university about 3 years ago and um the Aperion blog actually came about over a coffee with some friends so um they were firing loads of philosophy questions at me and one of them was just a really generic one that I always seem to get which is what exactly is philosophy mm-hmm. and after speaking about it for a while I kind of realized that a lot of people don't really know what philosophy is and that really disappointed me because you know when it's practiced it has the power to change your rationality the way you think and the way you perceive the world all for the better and i came to realize that a lot of people they kind of want to study philosophy and they want to retrieve the value from it but most academic okay. philosophy has loads of barriers imposed so it requires you know an ability to decipher lots of jargon or understand larger blocks of texts um and because yeah. of that i wanted to create a resource with the aim of communicating the value of philosophy without uh, alienating any readers. So, no jargon, no text or anything like that. And it was.
0: Well, perfect. That's yeah. that's kind of why we're here. We're doing yeah. like the practical application of some of this. What does a parent mean? Uh,
2: so, it actually comes from the pre Socratic Anaximander, meaning indefinite or, or inboundless. So, I take it as, mm-hmm. uh, in some, the unboundless blog, really.
0: Ooh, I like that. I was familiar with the term, the Greek term aporia, which uh, I think means something like, like a befuddlement that leads to um, uh, a big insight. Cool.
2: I, hmm. I've not heard of that one myself, but. Aporia. <laughs> aporia. <I feel laughs> like that. Spelled similarly.
1: So John, um, so I love what you're saying about just the study of philosophy. I'd had a couple classes, uh, philosophy classes in college and, Um, just like you're saying, I felt like I wanted to hang, but it felt like there was this barrier that I wasn't smart enough, or I couldn't kind of follow the, the logic, the principles, but good and well enough. But I, I craved this kind of depth that philosophy, depth of thinking that philosophy introduced me to, and always wanted to keep going with it and find this like what is it what is it for to what end like how do I apply this uh, to myself Um, and so I love the work that you're doing to that end and I wanted to see if you could just talk a little bit about how what does philosophy have to teach us about ourselves and how how we function in the world
2: that's a great question again um, I think when a lot of people ask me what philosophy is my initial inclination is to just revert back to the sort of questions that we ask as children. You know, the mm. childlike curiosities of, you know, what does it all mean or where did the universe come from? Um, so it's when when you try to communicate philosophy in a more accessible way, it's to revert back to that. And um, a really useful tool we use in philosophy is something called thought experiments. So in short, they're really useful, you know, short scenarios and stories that kind of link our intuitions and I really love this aspect of philosophy because literally anyone and everyone can understand them with ease um, and they don't have to necessarily be realistic, but they can be really fun and they can reveal a lot about our character. Um, so to talk through an example, um, Frederick Nietzsche gave uh, the doctrine of eternal reoccurrence, um, which is a really fun thought experiment. And it says, imagine you've lived today as you normally would, and you've got to the end of the day and a devil comes down and he casts a spell on you. And he says, you're going to live this day for all eternity on a loop every single day. Mm. Um, And the the groundhog day. Yeah, exactly. It's just like groundhog day. And I think the question is, you know, would you be happy with that result or would you be, um, you know, really angry at the devil? And um, that reveals quite a lot about our desires and values, because, you know, if if we get to the end of the day and we've realized, you know, we've made a mistake, we shouldn't have lived how we had today, um, then we're clearly not living in accordance with, you know, the things we do desire. Um, so yeah.
0: Mm. I like that. I do too. Well, you know, I, so we've been talking about, you know, how, how the impracticalities of philosophy, like, uh, if you do, if you are one of the cool kids at, at college, one of the smart, cool kids, and you get a degree in philosophy, it's kind of impractical for finding a job right but what what's been the result for you since you graduated
2: um i wouldn't necessarily regard myself as a cool kid but um <laughs> <laughs> well, the I'm,
1: philosophy majors were always the coolest yeah, they, they were. were like cool they wore cool <laughs> hats they had like beards you know they were always the best
2: <laughs> yeah i'm I'm hoping to grow a beard at some point but i don't get there yet um i'm definitely more hesitant to conform and follow the crowd i think that's for sure you know a lot of us mm-hmm. define ourselves by our day-to-day jobs when i meet people um you know even at kind of university the first question was what do you study and now it's you leave university and the first question when you meet someone new is you know what do you do mm-hmm. um and i prefer to define mm-hmm. myself kind of by less egoic means so establish my self-worth from my values rather than for example my salary Um, and I think when I look around I see a a repetition repetition from generation to generation so people leave education at 18 they enter a job they don't necessarily want and then they get comfortable and they stay there it's only in kind of retrospect when they hit 50 60 they realize it wasn't the life they wanted and I'm very much the converse of that so I'm doing a lot of self-reflection and thinking before I even start a job and I'm a lot more willing to take risks and push myself rather than like settling for something. And I think that's what led, led me to my writing journey and it's mm-hmm. why I'm even here today. Um, so yeah.
1: Well, can we just stop there for a second? Cause I, that's, I, this is like you are speaking my language. We talk about this a lot with our community. How, how did you get there to kind of a reverse thinking of what typically society sets up for us, exactly what you're saying. You kind of, you know, you, you there's this predestined kind of checking boxes that we go through. How did you arrive to it so differently? Like what happened in your life that kind of made you rethink that and turn it upside down a little bit?
2: Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of people, the, I think the reason that, you know, 50, 60-year-olds look back, on their careers and reflect and realize they've made a mistake is because you know um they're coming towards like their older older years and then it's then there comes the realization you know that one day they will die um, and i think it, there's a big emphasis in existential philosophy especially in that you know um assuming you comes to realization that you are going to die and it's okay the better because you'll stop wasting time on the small tedious things that in the grand scheme of life, don't matter. Um,
0: mm.
1: so. That's so. That's cool. I I'm um, thinking of Yalom, existential psychology, who I've always admired and um, found myself when I was doing more clinical work, bringing him up a lot with my clients. And it's interesting. Like you strike me, John, as somebody who kind of has that old soul type of type of a, a way of seeing the world. Because I've I've and I identify with that. I think I've um, I've always been struck by this, even when I was little. Like this belief, this idea that like we don't have a long time in this in this life, and so even as a as a teenager and a child, asking questions about what's it all for, why are we here, what is the point of this, and so the work that you're doing, the work that I, I love with uh, Yalom and existential psychology, really gives me kind of language to for myself, but also to talk about that with other people. So I just wanted to say that I appreciate uh, this conversation a lot.
2: No, thank you so much. Yeah, I think it I think just acknowledging that puts us in a really powerful position as well, because, you know, um, I think an even more powerful position would be to acknowledge that, you know, it could be all meaningless. Um, You know, life itself, and everything might not be meaningless, it could have some deeper meaning, you know people search for it in the existence of God and life after death, but even if there isn't, I think that's okay too um mm-hmm. It's kind of difficult to communicate why, but um yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's uncontrollable yeah. so
0: right right it's prepared you apparently for some of these things who um john who are some of your biggest say philosophic heroes who's been a big influence on your thinking do you do you go back to antiquity or um do you have some contemporary um folks who have um had that influence
2: um so i've got sort of that's a good question when people usually ask me who my favorite philosophers are i usually list off two. so socrates obviously has to be on there um And for your listeners, if you haven't read the apology, um, I'd really recommend that you do, Um, because he's it's in in a similar vein to how we've been discussing things. He's so certain in himself and his values that he's um, kind of willing to die for what he thinks right. Um, So the Socratic methods, based on kind of asking questions about you know what other people say, really. Um, So at the time, um, uh, a lot of people were claiming to know things that they didn't necessarily like actually know, even though they claim they did. And Socrates used to go around and ask questions and get to the root of their, their knowledge. And he tended to reveal that um, they didn't really know anything. Um, and that upset a lot of people. Um, and he ended, right. up, he ended up being convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. Um, and he was offered a choice to stop what he was doing and live. But he kind of just opted for death. And he claimed that um, the difficulty, my friends, is not in avoiding death but an avoiding unrighteousness for that runs faster than death. Um, and then he dies.
0: And didn't they, they gave him some options, right? It was going to be exile um, or something or death. It was, ex- there were three yeah. options and he chose the death.
2: So, yeah. So, um you know, he, uh, in the Fido, um, he was, he was told that if he could just stop what he was doing and stop going around and upsetting people was the first option or he could, you know, be exiled and thrown out of the city, or he could choose death. And he, he actually gives several arguments for why he thinks life exists after death. And then he says, I'm not scared. So might as will kill me.
1: <laughs> wow. That's so like, you know, thinking about how many values am I willing to die for?
2: Yeah.
1: You know, that's, 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 uh, that's the beauty of this this work, like it really this thought exercise you're talking about. Like that's um, challenging. And he,
0: that's- and he wrote nothing down, and we're talking about him today.
2: Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, another oh. another philosopher that I, a more contemporary one that I really resonate with, is a philosopher called Peter Railton. Um I'm not going to bore you with the extensive details, but he wrote a lot. How of
1: what's his last name?
2: Uh, Railton, which is R-A-I-L-T-O-N. Okay. Okay. And he wrote a really interesting paper called Alienation, Consequentialism, and the Demands of Morality. Um, Again, I won't bore you with the details Mm because it gets really complicated, but it's just an indication of, because it's an ethical paper, so it's kind of changed my stance on how I judge each individual token action as right and wrong. Um, And that's had a really big impact on how I live my day-to-day life. So to give you a really, really um, day-to-day example, I was in the supermarket about three, four months ago, and some I was at the self-checkout. I'm not, not sure if you have those in the states. I'm sure yes, you do.
0: Mm-hmm. more and more. <laughs>
2: um, and I could, I could see the person in front of me, in the like who was using the checkout before me, scan about fifty pounds worth of items, and then not pay and walk out. And I was left with this moral d- dilemma. You know, do I? do I say something to the uh, to the staff or do I just let him walk out? Um, and it was, you know, it, some of these questions, mm. you know, it, stuff, the sort of stuff we talk about in ethics can seem really far-fetched. You know, we talk about the trolley problem and it's like people say, well, what's the point in talking about that? But I think this is a real day-to-day example where it's like, mm-hmm. I have to have some core principles and I have to establish and discern when I'm going to say something and when I'm not, essentially.
1: So the, the, the operative word there to me is discern yes. and I, like t- t- take us through kind of those steps that you, you do think about that get you to some, I mean, obviously we have to act. We either even non-action is an action. Of course,
2: yes. So how
1: did you, and how do you, um, use the philosophy that you've you've kind of integrated into your life to get to some levels of discernment like do you have a, a framework in your head do you write things down do you talk it out with people like how do you bring this this work into your life in a real active way
2: cool so i'm actually um an act utilitarian but um so that's the belief that um each token action is morally right or wrong if it if it maximizes the most welfare so how it works is um when something's happening for example you know i drink some water for example i'll take a look at everybody's welfare that's impacted the negative like reduction in welfare if it's negatively impacting someone and the positive increase in welfare and i'll I'll work out calculations um and then if it produces the most um then it is um, the morally right choice to make but act utilitarian act utilitarianism itself is quite a um a philosophically flawed belief system so uh railton gives a sub-branch of act utilitarianism which is the belief that instead of focusing on token actions um which maximize welfare instead we should create rules in society um and the rules that um On the whole create the most welfare so in my example of not stealing for example i adopted a rule which said you know if he's stealing unnecessary goods then realistically less welfare is produced because um he's not really gaining any pleasure or welfare from the things he's stealing um and he's kind of hindering you know people's jobs in the supermarket Um, Whereas Mm -hmm. if he was stealing something necessary like bread uh, to feed his family, then, you know, the welfare he gains from stealing the bread and eating it far outweighs any impact it might have on a multinational supermarket.
1: Mm -hmm. It's the the modern day Heinz dilemma, right? Like, do you steal the medicine for your dying wife? You know, that's... um, you know, that's the conundrum. And I I love that. That is a real world example. That's not just left to the, to the, to the mind, but that we have to confront those things all the time.
0: And you've teased it really well. I think we're all kind of wondering, how did you respond? What was your decision?
2: Oh, well, he was stealing vodka. So, um, I did end up.
1: (laughs) So it wasn't bread. (laughs)
0: <laughs> 50 pounds worth of vodka. That's yeah. funny.
1: Um so I I'm curious, John, if um where in like what is philosophically, like what have you learned that has kind of rocked your world and has really challenged you or uh, fundamentally kind of changed how you see the world?
2: Um that's a good uh, another good question, question right yeah. um, sorry uh, <laughs> but I am just... I'm like
1: this is good I want to I want to know kind of what's um what's really kind of worked on you a little bit that you maybe you're still working on you're still kind of doing the the work to integrate it or understand it or bring it into your life
2: yeah so um there's I don't necessarily fully agree with it but there's um a subsection of Buddhism called uh, Abhidharma Buddhism, and um, in like really short terms, they believe that if a like a person like um, Chad or Shelley or John was to exist, there'd have to be some sort of core essence there. And they looked around. So sorry, let me clarify. By core essence, I mean something that exists in you uh, mm-hmm. from one time to the next. So from you know three o'clock to 301 there's something that sustains itself and we call that ourself um and this form of uh, abhidharma buddhism looked around the universe and it identified five um five properties and components that everything's made up from so uh, there's like mental constituents and there's like physical ones as well so a thought is one of the five for example okay. um in really simple terms and after looking at these all these five elements, they noticed that none of the five persist from one moment to the next. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what this means is that us as people, we're made up according to this view of these five components, and all we are is just a bundle of these elements. And from one moment to the next, every single part of us is changing. You know, our thoughts, every uh, cell on our body, for example, mm-hmm. and according to this view that means that there's no self um so i don't actually exist um all i have is a construction of my, like a a social construction of myself where i'm looking at myself in the mirror and pretending that i exist to make my life easier and Mm. i have um i had a lecturer at the time who completely internalized this belief and
1: wow what did that look like
2: he uh so he He'd always meditate, be meditating, but you'd, you'd go to a lecture and he'd show up 20 minutes late and you'd say, why are you late? And he'd say, who am I? You're like, who, who's this you you speak of? Or you'll say, <laughs> him, how are you doing? Or did you have a good Christmas? And I'd be like, who, who is this you? Like, I, I didn't have a good Christmas. I don't exist.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow.
0: Well,
2: so,
1: so, you know, and here, <laughs> like, were you going to say something else, John?
2: Um, Oh, just to round it off, so this strand of Buddhism, when they meditate, yeah. they believe that all meditation is is the the allowing because when we construct ourselves, we we believe that we're in control. When really, it's just you no know, random elements arising naturally in flux. And um rather than like cont- pretending we're in control and desiring things, instead, when they meditate, they just let things arise organically and that's all that meditation is to them.
1: Hmm. So one of the things that I um, I soapbox about a little bit is the value of the ego and the necessity of the ego um, to function for mental health. Um, And I, you know, where there is no ego, there is no mental health. And so what you're saying brings that to mind for me in terms of, is the ego kind of the, this, this construction that's kind of, connecting the dots of those moments in a very necessary way, because I think of, you know, most of us can't operate in that, um, ad- identity less place. Like, like we just, most of us don't live our lives that way and nor c- could we. So the, yeah, I think that the value of, of the ego can help us kind of, I don't know, reconstruct an identity a little bit more, um, I don't I don't know if where, where where that definition of mental health is, because I I hear what you're saying. And I I don't know that I would want to live that way in that completely kind of deconstructed um, there. I am not me. I have no self like that would that would be a tough place, I think, for most of us to live to be. Would you agree,
0: Chad? Well, well let, let's see. Yeah. I mean, I think we are, if you think about it, with this very conversation where we're beginning with the presupposition that there is a self of some kind. That's why we're saying, you know, we're calling it self-knowledge. Right. Um, and I think we do have, however we're defining it, a sense of self. And I think that we're saying as well that the beginning of knowledge is this inner wisdom, this this, you know, this journey of self-knowledge. So I guess to put this into a a question for John would be to say, you know, like how do if the beginning of, you know, your ability to change and maybe live a life more in alignment with your values, as you've really emphasized, John, what, you know, what do people need to learn about themselves in order to get into the right kind of mindset and, you know, maybe break free of some of those shackles that are keeping them in their, you know, stuckness, uh, and maybe living a life that they at least say they want.
2: Uh, good question again. Um, so yeah, so just put into the Buddhist view, I've just said to one side, it's important to note that I don't actually believe that um and um a yeah, lot. it's a
1: hard it's a hard one
2: um so you know that view it bas they basically say you know you should acknowledge yeah. that's the case but you should still live in accordance with uh, being yourself because it's more like as you say it's be- it might be better for your mental health it might be better for mm-hmm. us to practice um and live as a society if you know people don't pretend like people pretend they exist rather than showing up late to everything um <laughs> But um, in terms of, you know, things that are are required really on our self-knowledge journey, I think for me, um, in determining our value, I think authenticity is something that I hold important over and above everything else. Um, I see a lot of people making trade-offs, you know, they adapt who they are to make themselves more likeable or they take on a job they don't want to make money. And um, yeah, I think the ability to establish value, uh, your values would be to take away, you know, the the reason, the social reasons why you're performing them in the first place. So, you know, if in the UK, quite a lot of people drink alcohol, not necessarily because they want to, but because, you know, all their friends are doing it. So it's, it's much easier to fit in and make friends. And I think if you took away, like when you internalize and ask yourself, do I want to Drink alcohol or do I want to perform this action? Uh, ask it yourself as if there were no social benefits you know, even if my friends weren't drinking it and it wouldn't make me fit in easier, would I still do it um you know even if um this job was like you know a corporate job that I don't necessarily want, even if that job paid less, would I still take it um and if there were alternatives, would I take it um and one of the biggest lessons I've kind of learned in this department comes from a small segment of Soren Kierkegaard's diary. So, paraphrasing, he kind of basically says that contemplation is the uh, like contemplation and self-reflection is the key to living authentically. So,
0: mm.
2: if you're not, you start uh, sort of you know internalizing the values of other people. Um, and I think it's also important to note that you know the loudest the loudest opinions aren't necessarily the correct ones Mm -hmm. um so you know crowds aren't always right and i know there's a couple of using philosophy of convergence which says you know the people who the majority view is always correct whereas I, i don't believe that personally i think there's something objectively true out there and if you believe something in your heart after reflecting on it then you know you should have the courage and the willing to stand by it
0: well, that is interesting. It sounds like you've been influenced by uh, Heraclitus. You've written about him before, that pre-Socratic pre philosopher, maybe the most important one, famously said you can never stand in the same river twice. Um, and he said that, you know, one of the, your takeaways from that article, he said that, you know, we shouldn't bother to worry about what others think, just focusing on understanding ourselves. Um, so that's is is that do you agree with that do you do you really think that Heraclitus had a point that um kind of lives out to this day
2: uh yeah, so it's important to note that those weren't actually my own no sorry Heraclitus's papers don't really exist anymore, so those right. those are kind of my sort of my own interpretation along with a philosopher mm-hmm. called Joanne Stowerber I think that's how you it. Okay. anyway mistake me apologies to listeners if I'm terribly wrong with that pronunciation but um. Yeah, so Heraclitus was a strong believer in flux. You know, as you've said, uh, you know most famously, you cannot step in the same river twice. And I think it's because of this flux, according to uh, Heraclitus, that you can't really understand anyone. Um, and I completely agree with this at times. You know, a lot of what other people do does seem to be erratic and completely uncontrollable. Um, and at times, we kind of label those actions as out of character, but in reality we can never really know what's going on in people's heads and their intentions um but you know for setting that to one side there is one thing that we can understand and it's because we know what goes on in our own heads we can come to know ourselves um, and it's through kind of that careful contemplation that we can learn to control our thoughts and our emotions and reflect and properly understand them um heraclitus once said that self-wisdom is the ultimate wisdom so it's only after understanding ourselves that we can better understand the world around us um
0: that that is oh sorry no
2: no carry on sorry
0: (laughs) well i just think i we i think we agree that that is the beginning point
2: yeah i
1: i'm curious how you see other people playing a role in how we understand ourselves and as we were talking about kind of the um there is no self kind of idea that we're all not really sure if we buy that, uh, or at least we're thinking about it, how, like as we are learning about ourselves, as we are reflecting on ourselves, how do you see other people playing, playing a part of that? Because we are social animals. We are meant to be connected with others. So how does, how does that fit together? Yeah.
2: Um, so paraphrasing, uh, heraclitus there's a really good quote which says only a fool would seek counsel from the ones they doubt and um i think it's important that we don't form like strive to form a human connection out of desperation um Mm. and instead you know it's only by becoming comfortable in ourselves that we'll actually be able to form that sort of connection as a choice rather than as a need um Mm. and if it's on the need part of the um spectrum then that's when we try and impress those that we don't even like really. So um, a really good psychological theory that I've been reading about um, is one called um, homophily, which says that, you know, um, it's a trait that we see a lot in children and we kind of carry through to adulthood, which is um, we look outwards into our social environment and we look at people that we want to be friends with and how they act. And after we, we set our sights on them, we start adapting our behaviour to how they act, um, just to make ourselves more likable. And the problem is that most of the time we don't even necessarily like those people. We just want to be friends with them, you know, out of ego perhaps or social status. I know a lot of people who, you know, you can sort of tell that the friends that they choose aren't ones that aren't friends that they like or friendships that they value in themselves. They they form those friendships to try and for a reason, you know, to, to, uh, because mm-hmm. they do something for them socially. Yeah. So it's, this... I
0: mean, we do kind of know others. We under, see, it's I guess it's a paradox or an irony in that, and that, you know, never the, even though it all does begin with the self, I think in the end we can't really know ourselves without some, you know, um, interchange with each other
1: yeah i'm thinking of um there's an author that i follow religiously uh parker palmer you he's a an author and scholar and activist in the states uh, and he uses this image of a mobius strip which is kind of the this idea of the infinity circle and how um, and I, you know, people can't see it because we're on podcast, but it's this way of like the internal shapes the external shapes the relationships, and then thereby this this external these social connections shape the internal. And I agree with what we're saying. I think it all starts with the self, and like this getting really comfortable with self uh, reflection, self confrontation, self development, and then from that place of authenticity having a group of trusted people around us, then they begin to mirror back and reflect back the self to us. And then that's where I think real um, authentic relationships are formed and also really authentic personal growth comes from too. So it's this, it's both. And would you agree with that, John?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. I think one, one question that's, that's really important to ask is, you know, when we're talking about self-knowledge, who is, who are you, you know, who, who's John? Is it the person I intend him to be or is he just the person Mm -hmm. the public seeing interpret themselves? So um, I do agree that, you know, other people play a really key role in who we are as people. Um, But it's, I think it's, um, I think the point I was referring to earlier was more of, you know, of the former uh, part of the spectrum in that how we intend us to be should be really independent of, of people perhaps. Um, and then, you know, we just, you know, instead of trying to impress people, we just let let ourselves do our own thing and then the right people are warm to us on our journey.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Especially if we're living authentically, if that's a value. Yeah. And I,
1: and I think sometimes the, the right people uh, might be in conflict with our authentic self. And Mm. I think there's learning in that too. And there's growth in that too. Not that we, um, you know, I think that I love the distinction you made earlier about needing someone versus almost this just kind of natural connection. Um, so I think there's, I think there's a lot of grist for the mill that we can use in our own self-work, whether it's, you know, coming from a place of, of conflict with somebody. Cause some of the, the times I've grown the most in my life are out of real conflict with people. And I've had to think about like, what, am, what is, why are they re- repulsing me? <laughs> why am I doing this to them? Like what's, what's there that I need to be learning from and learning about myself. And that's super uncomfortable, but I think those are really important times too.
2: Yeah. Um, I think I completely agree with that. And I think as I think confrontation and learning from others is a really important um, part of life you know we often kind of identify with the person we see in the mirror but Mm. you know at times I you know I always have some self-doubt and I think I bet I look radically different to the person I have in my head I Mm. bet I bet you know I also define myself by my intentions but I bet 90% of the time those actions don't really come across that way Mm. Um, there's a really good um, I can't remember where I read it but There's a really good psychological paper that claims that, you know, if you were to see yourself on a train or a doppelganger, you wouldn't recognize them um, and you'd be really surprised. And yeah, I think, Mm. you know, a lot of people have this really idealistic self-perception. They think they're the best version of themselves. You know, I see, you know, the younger generation, they take photos and they define themselves by how many likes they get. And I bet in their heads, they actually think they look, like some of the photos they're putting online, even though they don't look anything like them, Um, which is crazy to think um, because, you know, everybody has their own little world and universe they live in. And I think, you know, bursting that universe and that bubble for a second and just getting a change of perspective and hearing how other people perceive us can be a really powerful thing. And yeah, in, in the way you described the, um, the confrontation, you know, you might've done something that you interpreted in one way and it came across in another. And the way it came across you wouldn't necessarily consider to be something that you would do and it's by listening and learning that you can kind of change Mm,
0: that's good that is good good. you know it it, it, it's a it's a process we um you know it's not going to be easy to sort of change our self-perception or the story that we are telling ourselves uh do you have any practices or routines that uh that work for you that you would uh recommend for others as they kind of undergo this um this never-ending journey but one that you could um get pretty strong at if you maintain some discipline
2: Yeah um so personally um on my journey of self-knowledge I use meditation to try and discover my true self but For me it's kind of a time to completely give up control and just sit and let my thoughts and my feelings and my emotions just arise organically because that reveals what's on my mind really what i deem to be important when it shouldn't be and perhaps what i should be thinking about more um i've done my fair share of meditation over the years and i've spoken to a few buddhist monks and um, i think one of the biggest takeaways that i learned was that you can you can meditate literally anywhere so It doesn't necessarily require you to sit cross-legged or have a shift of focus. No, sorry. It doesn't require you to sit cross-legged. All that it does require is that you have a shift of focus in the mind, Mm -hmm. and that you're attuned to, you know, your your thoughts and your feelings. And I think those thoughts and feelings do represent your true self because uh, when you're completely giving up control of and stop trying to suppress certain thoughts that maybe are unpleasant or that are difficult, it's then that the things that are important to you you begin to arise um so for me i tend to meditate while i'm walking and while i'm reading but you know you could you could undergo this practice in the pub or you know down the down the gym with your mates or whatever so
1: Mm, that's great yeah i um i try to every day find some solitude usually on my back porch and I have to kick chat out. It's like, this is my solitude time. Go away. (laughs)
0: Don't talk to me. And,
1: um, and I do, I, you know, a lot of the reflection I do is, you know, am I living, did I live my life in accordance with my values? Did I live my life today in accordance with my values? And that seems to be a pretty grounding question for me. I mean, and I don't, you know, most of the time, most of the time I'm, you know, my actions kind of take me in a direction, um, of autopilot and habit that I don't even really intend to. So, um, so yeah, I think that your, your suggestion about meditation, even if folks aren't quote meditators, I think just finding some space to, um, reflect and just, you know, pay attention, really examine their thoughts and feelings and behaviors and, and asking, is this in accordance with what I want? So I appreciate that a lot.
0: Yeah, a lot of wisdom here, John. Thank you for sharing uh, your time and insights with us. It's uh, it's not it's not an easy journey, but um, it sounds like you've um, come to some hard won insights already. And we appreciate your generosity of of time here.
2: No, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself, you know, wise or knowledgeable. I think. Uh, everybody just has, has different journeys. Um, I mean, I'm only 21. So the hope is God, that that's, that's my, knowledge, my knowledge will change and adapt as my story and my life grows. So, you know, yeah. every, every listener, just take what we've talked about with a pinch of salt. And if it doesn't work for you, then there's loads of different paths too.
1: That's right. That's right. There are so many different paths. Um, well, I I would not agree with you about the wisdom thing. I think you have tremendous wisdom and perspective um, that starts from your own life, but broadens from that. And I do think people, whether it, it may not all fit for them, but they're going to find lots of nuggets in what you're saying. And I um, just, I'm so grateful for your work, for being here, for the the words that you put out into the world. And I just know that they're, um, they're impacting people. So I appreciate you being here. I want to ask, where can people find you?
2: Yeah, so um, I write uh, articles on philosophy, um, self-improvement and life lessons over on Medium. Um, So my username is just at uh, underscore J-O-N Hawkins. And yeah, if people want to have a -A 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 read, they can. Um, yeah, just, yeah,
1: we'll just, we'll uh, link them in the show notes. Lots we'll, of we'll good put reads everywhere that we can find you, and link them in our show notes.
2: Amazing. Um, everything I write, you know, I've been written in my bedroom or in a coffee shop nearby, and it's it's crazy to think that people even take the time to read Yeah, it's so, so, so much. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, good yeah, stuff. I
0: think you've got yeah. a lot of readers out there. I
1: think you're going to get a lot more. Um, this is this is definitely in. Uh, squarely
0: in the topics of what we talk about itself so thank you thanks for tuning in to the big self podcast at the big self school we know you want to connect with the world in a way that's meaningful and get rid of that feeling that life is just passing you by without you having anything to show for it To do that, you need a community that supports you as you rediscover your purpose and resources to help you along the way.
1: So we're creating books. We're building workshops. We have group coaching to help you rediscover your big self that we call inner circles and a healthy and whole community at big self school. So check out our two hour virtual classes on how to build resiliency, how to discover what you really want how to like yourself more, and how to find calm. I need that one. And many more at bigselfschool.com forward slash classes.
0: We will see you on our next episode.